Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, on behalf of the LSE and the International Inequalities Institute, I would like to welcome you today to today's event. Uh, today's, today, Heather Boucher will discuss her new book titled Unbound, How Inequality Constricts Our Economy and What We Can Do About It. Uh, my name is Tane Ohms. I am research officer at the III. I work on the research, one of the research theme, themes at the III called Wealth, Elites, and Tax Justice. This is led by the director of the III, Mike Savage, who unfortunately couldn't be with us today. A few uh, topics that we have been uh, researching on this theme are, for example, measuring and conceptualizing wealth, wealth and social mobility, and global financial capitalism. Uh, some of these topics are also touched upon uh, in Heather's book, so we very much look forward to uh, hearing her talk today. So I will give you a brief outline of today's presentation, so uh, of today's session. Uh, Heather will talk for about 45 minutes. After that, there will be a Q&A of 30 minutes. After the session, um, there's a possibility to purchase the book. Uh, if you, uh, Heather is available to sign the book as well, so after you purchase the book, you can come back to the stage where uh, she will be signing the books. And then there's also reception afterwards in the auditorium. So some housekeeping. Uh, first of all, uh, just so you know that the event is being recorded tonight, uh, I would like to ask you all for the, uh, the, the people who don't have their mobile phone on silent, if you could please put your phone on silent. Uh, if you want to tweet about the event, we would like you to use the uh, um, hashtag LSE Wealth, which should show up at the, oh, yeah, so it's also on PowerPoint. So now I will introduce you to the speaker of today. So I would like to present to you Heather Boucher. So Heather is president and CEO of the uh, Washington Center for Equitable Growth. She is former chief economist of Hillary Clinton's transition team. She's also author of several books, uh, Finding Time, The Economist of Work, Live Conflict, Work-Life Conflict, uh, and the co-editor of the book After Piketty, The Agenda for Economics and Inequality. The New York Times has called her one of the most vibrant voices in the field, and Politico has named her twice one of the top 50 thinkers, doers, and visionaries uh, transforming American politics. So now I would, I would like to give the stage to Heather. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here this evening. Um, very excited to, to be able to talk to you all. I want to get these, figure out how to, okay, great. Um, so, and thank you, Tanae. Um, I'm very excited to hear about the work that you guys are doing here and to be able to talk to you about my new book. Um, I want to start for a moment by, um, you know, kind of um, locating why I wrote this book. Like, why did I decide to write a book on inequality? Um, I run, I actually co-founded, the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, which launched in the fall of 2013. And our goal is to advance evidence-backed ideas and policies in promote of growth that is strong, stable, and broadly shared. But we have a, um, a very unique institutional strategy. We start with a question, which is to ask whether and how inequality affects economic outcomes. How does it affect productivity? How does it affect growth? How does it affect stability? You know, over the past 40 years or so, we've been told this story 
that the path to growth that is strong, stable, and broadly shared is to ensure that those folks that are the quote-unquote job creators, the, the investors, the people that you know run America's or any country's businesses, that in order for them to... Uh, to demonstrate the the kind of growth that an economy wants to see, we need to give them a lot of freedom. We need to give them freedom from uh, regulations or institutions that can constrain them and make it hard for them to invest. And we need to make sure that they have the resources so we don't want to tax them too much. This is a story that we've heard time and time again about what is good for our economy. Sometimes we think about it in this um, equity efficiency trade-off. But We always sort of start from the premise that equity is not fundamental to what makes an economy strong. It isn't really a driving force. We don't need to think about it um, as the starting place. But for the past six years, we at Equitable Growth have been asking this fundamental question, does inequality matter? Inequality in incomes, inequality in wealth, um, inequality across firms, market concentration. Does it matter for economic outcomes more generally? Is this story, this sort of shorthand about the economy, is there truth to it? And what can we tell from the empirical evidence? So what we've been doing at Equitable Growth is we've been investigating this question through working with scholars, uh, mostly in the United States, but also from around the world, um, who are doing detailed, serious, incredible research into these questions. We have an open and competitive grant program that goes out each fall. We just re- released our 2020 call for proposals. And over the past six years, we've funded uh, over 200 scholars, giving away about $5.5 million on research that asks this question in some way, whether and how inequality affects the economy. And so the book is a culmination of my learning over the past six years. It's a synthesis of what we know so far, both from the work we funded, but also from where economics is, where the research is, um, and what we are learning. So um, that's a little bit on the why. Let me give you a quick roadmap on how I'm going to walk through this talk today. I'm going to start with a few grounding data points. And just, um, uh, uh, I'm an American, you can tell from the way I talk and my introduction. And um, all the slides I'm going to show are based on the U.S. economy. Um, In the book itself, I constrain the story to the U.S., but I think it has broader implications. So, But I'm going to start with a few data points on what inequality looks like across a variety of axes. So what are we talking about here? And then I'm going to take us through a brief tour of what we're learning from the latest evidence from economics on how different aspects of inequality affect the economy. And then we'll end with a little bit on what we can do about it. And um, for you know, just to get right to the point, what we see when you look at the empirical evidence is that there is a new body of research that is grounded in new empirical methods and building on new data sets both from within economics, but from within other parts of the social sciences, that gives us a new answer to this question of whether and how inequality affects the economy. And you can tell from the title that um, I conclude that there are various ways that inequality is constricting our economy. Then to break it down into three ways, um, that it obstructs, subverts, and distorts, and I'll explain what, how I'm using each of those terms. But that when you look at the evidence in its total, you come up with this. You come out with this story about um, how inequality is constricting growth. So hopefully, um, I will convince some of you that there is research evidence for this, and um, 
This is a work in progress. So what I'm really hoping to do is to spark debate and conversation about the role of especially the kind of extreme inequality that we see in many of our societies um, and how we should think about it from the perspective of policymakers. I work in Washington, D.C. My first goal is to advise U.S. policymakers on what they should do about economic issues. Um, but I hope that we can have some good conversation tonight about what this all means. So. Um, and uh, so I'm going to go through these and start going through these takeaways on what we know about inequality. I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. I'm assuming at least some of you have some understanding of economics and some of the trends. Happy to make the slides available to folks afterwards and, of course, happy to take questions on them. But the point is not so much any specific data point, but the point is, is I want to show you just from a macro sense some of what the big picture trends are. So don't be, you know, terrified if I go through too quickly. Um, not that anybody would be terrified. Um, at any rate, I'm not very good at jokes. I try, but there, there you go. They're all bad, and they are all just about at that level, but there you go. Um, okay, so the first thing is that I want to start with a picture of average growth in the United States looking um, over the 1960s and 70s. This is income growth across individuals from 1963 to 79. On the horizontal axis um, is the income distribution, low income to high income. And on the vertical axis is average annual income growth. So that purple line across that horizontal line is average national income over the, those 17 years. That's about 1.7%. And then you can see clearly that over those decades, the United States was a nation that grew together. When national, and of course, national income is essentially equivalent to the concept of gross domestic product, a little bit of difference in how you take care of depreciation, a couple of other things, but for the purposes of this conversation, I'm gonna use them interchangeably. So what you see from this chart is that when national income rose, when GDP rose, the vast majority of Americans saw their income grow at about the same rate. So last week, we saw in the United States that GDP rose by 1.9%. If that had been in 1967 or 1972, most people would have also seen their incomes grow about 1.7% or 1.9%. Um, you can also see that we were growing together. People at the bottom were experiencing growth that was faster than the average, and people at the top were seeing growth that was slower. This data comes from um, research done by Thomas Piketty, Emmanuel Saez, and Gabriel Zuckman, and their work um, looking at U.S. income inequality. Um, so I want to look now forward to the next few decades, and I want to point out three significant differences in the trends. First, we don't talk about this enough, but over the period from 1980 to 2016, which is the most recent data that we have available, overall national income growth has slowed. It slowed from about 1.7% in those earlier decades to just about 1.3%. So even as we have an economy in the United States, um, as I'll talk about, where we've done all the things that were supposedly supposed to bring us strong growth, that actually hasn't been the outcome that we've seen. Growth has been slower. Two other big changes. So this is the same figure, but for different years, 1980 to 2016. Um, again, income distribution on the horizontal, uh, average income growth on the vertical. You can see that lower average income growth, that purple line. What you can see is that now it's the case that when we learn what national income growth was, the vast majority of Americans, 9 out of 10, are seeing their incomes grow slower than the average. So we're not learning anything from aggregate statistics on our economy in the same way that we were 
in the years of the 1960s and 70s. So when um, President John F. Kennedy could say in 1963, a rising tide lifts all boats, meaning that if you have economic growth, everyone will benefit, that was true. That is not the case now. Um, you also can see that, of course, the vast majority of the, you know, you see that at the very high end of the income distribution, they're growing much, much, much faster than the average, and everyone else is seeing much slower growth. It's a country that is literally pulling apart when you look at the income trends. So no longer a rising tide lifts all boats. In fact, Gene Sperling, who advised both um, Presidents Clinton and Obama, said um, it may be true that, you know, a rising tide lifts some boats, but others will run aground. And so you see this, this serious pulling apart. So um, I'm going to go through three uh, other trends in um, inequality. So the next is mobility. So this is um, the probability that a child grows up to out-earn their parents. This data is from Raj Chetty and a number of colleagues um, in their opportunity uh, project that they have, um, their, this uh, paper called The Fading American Dream. What you can take away from this is that if you were born in about 1940 in America, you had a 90% probability of growing up and out-earning your parents. If you're born in 1980, those millennials, only half of them are today out-earning their parents. That is a remarkable shift in a very short period of time that puts some, I, when I look at this, it sort of puts, to, for me, it puts the humanity on the prior charts. So you can look at the income distribution, like, oh, people are moving farther apart. What does that mean? What it really means for families is that parents are no longer seeing their children do better than they did. Um, and that that's a very, that's a significant shift in the United States in terms of um, how people experience the economy. At the same time, we're seeing a massive rise in wealth concentration. So um, this chart is, uh, you know, the thing that first draws my eye on this figure is to look at that bottom blue line that shows that the bottom half of the U.S. income distribution or the U.S. wealth distribution has seen no gain in their wealth since 1989. This is from new data from the Federal Reserve, um, their new distributional financial accounts data. It's a very cool data set. Happy to talk about it in Q&A. Um, but what you can see is unlike the bottom half, so that bottom blue line is the bottom half of households by wealth, the top 1% has seen a nearly 300% increase in wealth and, of course, recovered very quickly from the Great Recession. You can see how slowly the bottom folks recovered and are still just, you know, barely getting back to uh, where they were decades before. The top has just been moving on up, as they say. So um, the last slide in this section here is that alongside the shifts for families, we've also seen a rising concentration of firms. And it's really important as we're thinking about inequality, right? Inequality in itself, when I just say that word, it doesn't mean anything. There's no, there's no noun that it's attached to, right? It's just describing a difference in something. But when you think about inequality in the U.S. Con in US context, you need to, in any, I think, advanced economy, you have to look at income, you have to look at wealth, but you also have to look across firms. And what we're seeing is this rising market concentration. So in many markets, there are fewer and fewer firms. Um, and there's an increase in monopoly, an increase in oligopoly, and that this also is an important backdrop for what the changes that have been happening in our economy. All right, let me... Turn my page here, make sure I stay on my slides. Okay. So um, so I want to now turn to talking about what this all means. 
And I want to encourage you to, um, you know, as I'm talking through this, the way that I'm thinking about it after writing the book um, is that what these slides indicate is that there's been a change in the environment of our economy, right? And that's important because many of the economic ideas that we have, the theories that we rely on, the core components of economics, many of those were put in place by scholars in the middle and early part of the 20th century, right? So some of the, the basic concepts that we use were, you know, economics as a field really sort of came into its own in the early part of the 20th century and then flourished especially, you know, kind of defining itself in the middle part when inequality looked much different than it does today. But the environment in which the economy is happening is now um, much more unequal. So much more market concentration, much more wealth concentration, much greater income inequality. And so part of the question that I'm asking here is how does that change our understanding of the economy and how should it change our theory about how the economy works and our shorthands um, for uh, what we think will deliver uh, improvements in living standards. So um, the way that I break this down is in three buckets. So um, first is that inequality constricts growth through its effects on essentially human capital. And by that, I mean the obstruction of the supply of people and ideas into the economy, limiting opportunities for those not already at the top, and that this slows productivity growth over time. <coughs> So in the book, in each of the substantive chapters, I focus on the work of one economist whose work is emblematic of the new research in economic thinking. So in the, in the first two chapters, focus on the obstructions. Again, sort of the many ways that we are not using or we're either not developing or deploying our human capital to its fullest extent. So in the first chapter, I focus on the work of Janet Curry. He's a labor economist at Princeton and um, has focused on the last uh, decade or so or a little bit more of her career focusing on these questions of human capital. What is it that, that really creates the kind of producti the productive workers that our economy needs? And in a variety of papers, um, she's shown that uh, children who are born at a lower birth weight, all else equal, have lower employment and earnings outcomes as an adult. This is not to say that our lives are predetermined by birth weight, right, but that without interventions, all else equal, that, that we find these outcomes, that um, people have this um, uh, lower labor force participation, lower employment, lower earnings. And so she asked them the question, what role does inequality play in this? And she has a very unique um, methodology. Uh, she looks at children born to mothers before and after, the same mother, before, before and after the events of 9-11 in New York City. So these, these women had children before 9-11 when there wasn't this massive pollution that occurred after 9-11. And then they looked at children born in the months after when they were exposed to this toxic dust that was coming down because of the demise of the Twin Towers. And she does that in order to understand the effect of air pollution on fetal health so that we can understand the lifelong implications for human capital. And she and her co-author find that those children who were born after 9-11 are on average um, born at a lower birth weight. And so from that, she is able to show with some uh, high degree of certainty that inequality, which um, 
plays out in the United States with many children who are of lower income backgrounds living in neighborhoods where the air quality is worse can have a direct effect on future economic outcomes. So this is just one of the ways that um, uh, we see that inequality is obstructing the pathways to productivity and growth to so its effects on human capital. In the next chapter, I focus on work by Raj Chetty um, and his colleagues um, on how is it that we actually get innovators in our society. We think that productivity is driven by um, not just a lot of people being able to do their jobs really well, by, but by having those sort of those people with good new ideas being able to find their best fit in the economy and then make something of it and create all the things that um, propel our economy forward. So they wanted to know, okay, who gets a patent? And you know, how, is, uh, how does inequality affect that? So they have a data set where they have information on um, all the people who applied for and received a patent, and they know their income as an adult. And then they were able to pair that data with those people's third grade math test scores and their parents' income when they were in third grade. So they know something about them when they were a child, they know something about their aptitude, their math, their math test scores, their family, and they know something about whether or not they grow up and become an inventor. And what they find first is sort of the common sense. Kids that do really well on those third grade math test scores, that score the highest, are much more likely than other children to grow up and get a patent and become an innovator. Okay, well that, that makes sense. And then they look at that by race, by gender, and by income of, their, of the child's parents. And they find when they just look at those kids that got the best scores on that third grade math test, um, that the children from the highest income families four times as likely to get a patent as the children from the lower income families. And the same kind of trends hold across race and gender. Boys, in, again, in the top scoring group, boys much more likely to grow up and become an inventor, and white children much more likely to grow up than um, black or Latino children to become an inventor. And so they title this paper, The Lost Einsteins. And sorry, I was supposed to move my chart here. Um, so this is a picture of a child who has an opportunity or not. Um, you're, right, you're supposed to be looking that way I was talking, so you can focus on that now. Um, but they title this paper, The Lost Einsteins, because they're like, so there's all these children who have all this aptitude, and somewhere along the way, economic inequality and social inequality is preventing them from becoming the innovators that our society needs. And this is especially important because it may be that the kinds of things that those folks would invent would service those communities that um, are low income, or maybe they would invent things that women really liked, or maybe they would invent things that people of color would really like, or Latinas or Latinos would really like, right? And where our economy is being denied that innovation, that productivity growth, um, because inequality on some, in, at some point is obstructing the path. So I want to move on to the second way that inequality constricts the economy which is the subversions, what I call the subversions. And this is that inequality subverts the institutions that manage the market, making our political system ineffective and our markets dysfunctional. Now, 
I use the word subversion here um, uh, specifically because this really is about the ways that concentrated wealth inequality and the concentration of power across firms is able to act in a subversive way to make sure that, that the rules benefit them and are not benefiting the common good and there's evidence not benefiting the economy writ large. So, um, which is slightly different from the idea of obstructing someone from either uh, developing or deploying their human capital. So, um, I want to start with the government side of things. So, we know that there are lots of public investments the government needs to make, especially when you sort of think about all of these obstructions that inequality creates. One of the things that we need to be doing is making investments in, in um, people from low-income communities to sort of pull them up through um, equalizing opportunity through um, education or through housing policy or, or the like. That We need to be making these public investments. We also need to be making investments in infrastructure and green technologies and the like. But what we've been seeing in the United States is that public investment has been declining over time. This is a picture of public investment. Um, uh, the blue line is federal, the orange line is states, going back to 1947. So this is going back for over half a century. And what we see is that we're not, we're not making these investments. And the big reason why, and as you know, I've been in Washington for the past uh, 20 years now, and the, the reason often that we're not doing the spending we need to do is because we don't have the money. Well, we don't have the money because we've been spending that whole period, this goes back to 1950, cutting taxes, particularly for those at the very top of the income distribution. Um, and increasingly, in the last round of tax cuts, we've um, actually made the taxes on capital lower than the taxes on labor um, for individuals. Uh, so we have this situation where we're not making investments that people want, that the public wants, and instead we've been focusing our political energy on tax cuts that are enormously unpopular that primarily benefit the rich. Well, so in the chapter that I focus on on this question, um, I turned to the political science literature, which was enormously fun for me to sort of spend a couple of years like digging deep into what political scientists are telling us about the effects of I economic inequality on political outcomes. And what we learn is that we're not only seeing political polarization, which is associated with economic inequality, but that this economic inequality is subverting the way our democracy is working and it's subverting the way that policy choices are being made. There's research from a number of um, scholars that finds that increasingly in the United States, only policies that are supported by elites are actually put into, um, are, are actually passed into law. So there might be a policy that low income or moderate income folks uh, favor, and even if that is the majority, unless it also has support from those at the top, these things just aren't getting passed. Um, and so this is because of the way that we're thinking about um, our taxes and our revenues. So that's a subversion of a process that is directly affecting economic outcomes because, again, we're not making the investments that we need to make to address the obstructions. And, of course, we're also not making a whole host of other kinds of investments in R&D and infrastructure and the like. But the other really important subversion that we see in our economy is related to the market concentration. So... Um, in the 1960s and 70s, economists came up with the idea that um, we could do less in terms of regulating uh, monopolies and oligopolies and that we should not focus as much on breaking up companies or preventing mergers and acquisitions 
um, because the market would take care of that. And we just needed to focus on the most egregious examples and that we only needed to focus on consumer welfare. And what we've seen, um, I already showed you the figures that we've seen a rise of market concentration in the United States. This is a figure just showing you that we've seen a decline in the enforcement of what we call antitrust provisions, which I feel is such a difficult concept because I don't think anybody, antitrust makes it sound like we don't like it and we don't like trust. And I don't think anybody understands really that a trust is a monopoly or an oligopoly. It's firms working together um, uh, b behind the scenes. Um, We've seen a decline, and this is just one axis of enforcement of antitrust regulations in the United States. Um, we actually just uh, funded a literature review at Equitable Growth of, uh, by this scholar named Fiona Scott Morton, looking at all the different um, uh, ways that we know um, uh, what we're learning from the academic research about antitrust and about um, how it's affecting economic outcomes. And this is just one axis where we've seen a, a decrease in enforcement. There's a whole bunch of different metrics that I could show you that would show you the exact same pattern. Um, particularly, we are spending a lot less money on it. So the number of antitrust enforcements, enforcers and actions has been falling precipitously even as we have a growing economy and even as we've seen this rising concentration. And this, of course, is in the interest of those firms that are concentrated at the top and related to the dysfunction in the political process. There's also another, there's another aspect that I want to point to, which um, is that as we've seen the rise in market concentration, we've also seen an increase in um, what economists call monopsony in the labor market. Monopsony, another difficult term because who knows what it means, but it is, um, monopsony means that it is that you have a single buyer or um, you can have a, a, you know, a small number of buyers. Um, and so in a labor market, what that means is that increasingly in the United States, people are looking at a labor market where there are actually very few employment options. So in many communities in the United States now, if you're a nurse and you are in a community and maybe there's five hospitals, you might be able to go to any of those five hospitals for a job, but they're actually all owned by the same corporation. So if you have a falling out with your boss or, importantly, if you feel that the health and safety standards at the hospital or the way they're treating patients, you don't think you're able to give the best care and you're frustrated by that and you'd like to go to a different hospital where you can actually do a better job, you don't have any options because they're all owned by the same company. And, in fact, your performance and pay, um, you know, your records may be, you know, shared across all of these hospitals and you're not likely to get a pay increase by going from one to the other. That's a monopsony and it's pulling down wages. It's also, um, uh, there's research evidence bringing down the quality of many goods and services because there's no competition and there's no, um, uh, it's difficult to then enforce labor practices if there's no competition on the labor side as well. And that brings up that, you know, even as we see this rising concentration in our markets, um, we have, a, on the other hand, a decrease in the ability of workers um, in any form, either through government increasingly, but also through collective bargaining, to act as a balance um, to that increasing economic concentration at the top. You don't have the institutions to support, um, uh, to, to provide that, that, that balance um, across the economy. So I've bolded the United States, as we all know, we're an outlier in so many things, um, but this is the share of, of people um, covered um, by uh, union density and collective bargaining um, agreements across 21 countries. Fun fact about the United States, um, we made the right to bargain collective, collectively legal in the 1930s. 
Um, we now have fewer workers as a share of the private sector workforce um, who are in a union than we did before we made the right to bargain collectively legal. So there's that. Okay, so moving right along. Um, so the third way that we see that inequality constricts growth is through distorting demand, through both the effects on consumption and investment. And um, the effects on consumption are fairly straightforward. If um, you have a, a large group of folks that don't have money, then it makes it um, you know, very difficult for them to spend, and there's only so many yachts that people at the top can buy, and this has an effect on aggregate economic indicators. But we also see that growing inequality affects investment, and there's a couple of different channels. So first, um, there's research by um, Thomas Philippon here with um, uh, one of his co-authors that shows that the rising market concentration is actually behind, one of the factors behind, the long-term decline in net investment uh, in the United States. So we've seen the secular decline in investment. It's associated with sort of the productivity traps. And here he's showing, going back to the 1970s, that the ratio of net investment to net operating surplus is declining. And in his book, which came out this, actually came out the same day mine did, but in a series of papers, he traces this to the rise in market concentration. Monopolists and oligopolists don't feel the competitive pressure to make those cutting edge investments and often actually eat up their competitors, stifling investment. And you can trace this through the research literature. We also see from other research that this rise of wealth, if you sort of take any uh, sort of uh, Econ 101 or you take your introductory macro class, you learn that, that um, savings is an, is an identity with investment. However, how much savings an economy has, that is automatically equal to investment. But as we see the rise of wealth in our society, and you see this rise in savings associated, it, because, associated with it because the wealthy save more. Um, we've actually not seen a rise in investment, but what we've seen is an increase of money flowing through our credit markets, particularly to households. Primarily, of course, because they're happy to borrow because their incomes, as I showed you at the very beginning, they're not rising. In the United States, we've deregulated um, financial markets, making it easier for people to borrow in some cases. Um, but that is a, inherently a destabilizing way to run an economy. So you have all of this wealth that's amassing, and instead of it being put to productive use in the way that one would expect, it's being put to unproductive use and is being sort of um, driven out to households to sustain consumer demand. So that's a, it's a fragile cycle and one that we saw um, some outcomes of over um, the Great Recession. Some of the research on that actually comes from Atif Mian and Amir Sufi, who wrote a wonderful book called House of Debt, where they trace through the rise in the credit supply as one of the backdrops and um, factors accounting for the housing bubble and the Great Recession in the United States. So having gone through this set of ideas about how inequality constricts growth through obstructing the supply the deployment, the development and the deployment of human capital, how it subverts um, institutions that manage the market, and how that distorts aggregate macroeconomic outcomes, both through effects on consumption and investment. Um, I want to sort of hit on the final point, which is what can we do about it? These are all big, um, you know, big challenging problems. 
So I argue in the book, and um, the best thing about writing a book is uh, starting with one set of ideas and then spending a lot of time and coming out with a different set of conclusions than you started with. At least I find that to be the most um, energizing and the most fun. Um, And I ended the book feeling that the most important policy agenda we need to pursue is to address the subversions of the concentration of resources in our economy. Because if you don't address those, it's impossible for me to figure out how you're going to address the distortions in the macro economy or have the resources or the capacity necessary to eliminate the obstructions. So you really do need to start with thinking about what is um, the role of institutions in uh, regulating the market economy, market structure and competition, and how are we going to think about the rising concentration of wealth and how what is the role that government plays in that? So the two things that I would put at the top of my list are policies to address market structure and competition, which I think are both national problems, but also things that probably have to be dealt with at an international level as well, making the challenge just that much more difficult. And I would put at the top of the list taxing capital. Um, I am agnostic as to whether or not we do that through a wealth tax or through finding other ways to tax the income that capital generates. But I'm very excited about the new discussion that we're having in the United States about doing a wealth tax because it's opening up new avenues to have that conversation. And it's a much needed one. Um, And I'm also, I think that the research that shows that these kinds of policies can be important, not just for the revenue that they raise, but for the effect that they have on the incentives for capital itself, I think is just as important as the revenue uh, at the end of the day. And then I would start focusing on removing the obstructions. Um, The place that I personally would focus is early childhood. In the United States, we're falling behind on a whole series of metrics related to human capital and education. But we know from the research evidence that the years from zero to five are among the most important, and we're not making any serious investments there at a national scale. So doing something around early childhood education and addressing um, the crisis of daycare, which would address both the, the human capital aspect for the next generation but also address some of our work-life conflicts, um, I think would be important. But, and here's where I'm going to end, those are big ideas. Those are structural changes that are going to be hard hard to do, big political lifts. And so I want to end with one idea that's super easy, um, that we could do right now, and that some countries are are, um, uh, starting to think about, and that is um, to rethink how we think about economic progress. So I started off showing you a series of slides looking at um, what's happening to various trends in inequality. And I talked about how the aggregate indicators of economic success no longer mean the same thing that they used to. So it was in 1963 that the OECD put in its mission statement the word growth. And the OECD was um, uh, played a big role in making GDP an indicator that countries around the world use to measure economic progress. It's something that every country has. You can make it consistent. We can all look at reports, so we can compare and contrast how countries are doing. And it's and it's an indicator that we think tells us something about economic progress. But I would argue for the United States, it no longer means anything. When I heard last week that GDP growth was 1.9 percent, I was like, great. So some people got really rich. And a lot of people maybe saw 1% growth. I don't know. I don't know what it means. But it doesn't mean that the vast majority of Americans saw their incomes grow by 1.9%. We know that for certain. So this is what 
U.S. GDP looks like going back to 1963, annual. And this is what it would look like if we implemented the disaggregated national accounts um, that have been spearheaded by the folks that are doing the world income database work, which is Piketty, Sai, Zuckman, a whole host of scholars. Um, this is for the U.S. Um, they're doing it for a variety of countries. But this shows... So um, apologies um, to folks in the audience who might be colorblind. I need to add um, slashes on this, but the, if, you, if you can see the colors at the top um, or at the bottom, but at the, you know, the ones not closest to the axis, are these green um, boxes. That's the top 1%. They're green because that's where the money goes. And then the purple is the next 9%. So that green and purple combined is the proportion of national income year over year that goes to the top 10%. And those little blue boxes that become fairly invisible at the right end of that chart are the share of national income received by the bottom half of the US population. So whereas right now, every, um, you know, every month, every quarter we get new GDP data, it's revised so we get new data every month, we see this. This is really the true story. And actually, I can show you, this is a mock-up of what the Bureau of Economic Report is on you know, what BA, uh, the, what the Bureau of Economic Analysis tells us about gross domestic product each quarter. So it looks like this. And what we want is something that looks like this, that actually gives us a story about how inequality and growth are interconnected. So that if we think that there are reasons that inequality constricts growth, we need to start changing how we measure economic progress and have a new conversation about that. Um, we're working on this um, in the United States to convince U.S. policymakers to do it. Um, they've introduced legislation. We've got a bunch of senators behind it. Um, and it looks like they might actually appropriate some money. So this could actually um, be piloted in 2020, which would be very exciting. And it's something that maybe we could proudly take a leadership role in. But I think what it does is underscores that when we're thinking about economic progress, we need to have measures and we need to have a conversation that is inclusive, that tells us something about how people all across the country are faring. And I want to end by just noting that as I've done this work and done, you know, sort of done this deep dive into the economics literature and trying to understand the effects of inequality, one of the key takeaways that I've had from this is that while we've for decades kind of told ourselves that we can have conversations about the economy over here and institutions and society over here, or you know, maybe if you listen to economists that there's always this trade-off between markets which are much more efficient and how institutions add in um, inefficiencies, I think actually the story has been quite wrong that unless we have institutions that somehow constrict or constrain inequality, we don't see economic outcomes that are um, give us the kind of strong, stable, and broadly shared growth that we would like to see and that our economic models have told us we can see. I mean, I think that we can actually make the argument that um, given this body of evidence and where we see economics going, that we might be in the midst of a paradigm shift, new data, new research, new methods that are showing us that our failure to take into account the institutions that constrain inequality means that um, we haven't been seeing the full picture of what makes our economy prosper. So with that, I will end and we can go to Q&A.
So thank you very much, Heather, for the very interesting presentation. So as I understand, uh, this book has been the product of six years leading equitable growth. So really, thank you so much for structuring all of the information that has been coming out over the years in such an interesting and new way. So now I would like to open up the, the, oh, the floor for questions from the audience. Um, I would like you to ask questions, uh, not give comments, please. Otherwise, I would have to break you up at one point, and I don't want to do that. Uh, I will take questions in round of three. As soon as you get the microphone, please introduce yourself before you ask the question. So who has any questions? Oh, well, there uh, we go. Yeah, Hands up person. in the back. Yes. And there's people up here, too. Yes. Thank you very much. I'm from, uh, a professor from China and a research fellow here. <coughs> yes, thank you for your very beautiful voice and a very clear presentation. Yeah. Well, as for them, I mean, that, uh, including Marx, you said that what make me feel a bit, bit puzzled. Why do you think that the market structure as the top issue to address rather than a kind of government redistribution policies. I think according to Karl Marx, he will prefer a kind of ownership. And you and you are kind of less, less dramatical. It's a kind of market, market structure reform. Yes, my question is that why don't you choose the redistribution policies such as tax and public expenditures, this kind of socialist policy. Thank you. I will take two more questions. Um, there are the gentleman with the white shirt. Thank you very much. I'm a political economy student here at LLC, and I have two questions. Uh, Sergio Campo from Mich uh, Minnesota Universities and others course from uh, Toronto University came up with the following proposal. Lowering taxes on business while at the same time increasing pro progressively tax on wealth. This will increase, according to them, the uh, level of economic activities and at the same time overcoming the trade-off with efficiency equity by increasing also equality in consumption. Do you think that is viable? The second is that, don't you think is there, uh, there exists a free market paradox? I mean, we have liberalization in the sake of more competition, but then we have market concentration that depress competition. Thank you. Uh, more questions? Back there. Yeah, I would like to give the question to the person in the great top. Yep. Hello, hi. Um, just a quick question. So there was all this research out there about um, quantitative easing, you know, causing more and more inequality post the financial crisis. And I was just wondering, you know, um, now that we're seeing um, the contraction, that is, you know, monetary contraction by in the U.S., does this mean that we would find that inequality would reduce or potentially stay stagnant? Um, great. So, okay, wonderful. Um, great. Uh, so, I will start with the last question, I think. So, if I understood your question correctly, um, so one of the things that uh, – one of the things so – in the United States, the Federal Reserve does not take into account uh, – 
inequality or incomes in its policymaking, right? Its mandate is um, full employment and um, price stability. And yet, I think that there is a very important um, argument in the in the data and evidence that we are seeing that actually they do need to take inequality into account much more, both in terms of the effectiveness of the policies, the, the policy toolkit that they have. Um, we've seen that the uh, that their ability to maintain growth just through interest rate policy has been declining, and we think that some of that you're not seeing the investment boom that one might that one might have seen in earlier years, given the the uh, what they've done with the interest rates, and that. Um, that is sort of when I said at the beginning that I think that the climate of the economy, like the, the, the you know, who has resources and what's happening to them, has shifted. And so we need to make sure that the way we're thinking about economics and economic policymaking needs to account in, for this new climate change that has happened within our economies. So I think that's sort of one aspect of it. The other aspect, which gets to your point about the quantitative easing, is that I think the Federal Reserve needs to take much more into account the effects of its policies on inequality. If So if inequality affects the effectiveness of their tools, then I think that it, they need to be spending a lot more time understanding the extent to which their policies themselves are affecting inequality. And certainly what we've seen is that quantitative easing has been, you know, is great for assets and for people that owned assets, but not great for other folks. Um, and, you know, and uh, uh, the other thing, of course, that we've seen is that since the financial crisis, even as we've had these very low interest rates, uh, lower income families, people with not great credit scores, have not been able to take advantage of those to buy homes or to so uh, and so again, that's primarily benefited elites or people that didn't um, uh, get their homes foreclosed on or whatever during the the housing bust and the financial crisis. So again, that has exacerbated this wealth inequality in really important ways. So um, the Fed is actually doing a lot more work in this area, and they've been open to it. Um, the, the data that I showed on wealth is they, they're actually now um, connecting the dots between their financial accounts data and a survey that they do on assets across families to create this quarterly distributional financial accounts that they're now starting to release, which would be akin to the quarter to, to um, doing this uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis, the uh, the quarterly uh, uh, distributional national accounts on income. I think that's very exciting to see them take that into account. Um, so on that was a long answer. Let me I'll be a little bit briefer um, in the next ones. Um, so I'm going in reverse order here. So. <laughs> yes, there's a free market paradox. I mean, I think that's like, I think that that is what is so interesting is that we have these, we tell ourselves these stories within economics that if we get institutions or, you know, imperfections out of the way that the market can work its magic without sort of starting from the, the understanding that we all, of course, know that these markets are actually created by humans and by the institutions that, that we create, and that you actually can't separate the two in the way that we, were, that we told ourselves over the course of the, the, the latter half of the 20th century. And once you realize that, then the big question becomes, what is the purpose of those institutions that manage the market? I think what the research shows is it a big part of that is not just bringing folks up from the bottom, which is, I think, where a lot of the conversation has been when you think about inequality or you think about economic outcomes, but on constraining some actor from running away with too much, be that through a rise in market concentration. So we think that the fact that Amazon 
not only controls this huge retail marketplace and has a monopoly on that, but that they are able to buy up competitors. They have this enormous wealth and they're able to um, lower prices to drive competitors out of the market. Um, but now they're vertically integrating so that they are taking the data on what they're selling and then being like, oh, okay, I'm going to make that and sell it, and then completely undermining, you know, product markets. That kind of, I mean, so they're basically, because they were the first mover, able to take control of this in ways that are not going to be beneficial either for consumers or for workers or for our societies over time. But so our rules about market structure and competition need to ensure that somebody isn't able to kind of run away um, by taking control of the whole market. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart. Um, on this question about, um, so not knowing exactly what studies you're pointing to, it's a little bit hard for me to answer. I do think, though, that um, uh, I, I do think that there is a lot of reason to focus on the gains of growth and taxing that. So taxing wealth is a form, I mean, so you can either tax it through taxing capital gains, where you're taxing the, the income gains from the assets that you own, or you can tax that stock of wealth directly, and you can essentially make policies that are virtually equivalent, depending on you know how you craft them. Um, that seems like a really important avenue, especially when you have all this wealth. Whether or not that can then substitute for corporate or business taxes, I would have to, that devil's in the details on that one. I'm not, I'm not really sure. And I think no matter which way you go, um, you know, there's a, uh, we're having a, a discussion right now in the United States about whether or not we could tax wealth. And one of the arguments that's brought up repeatedly is, well, other countries tried it, and now they don't do it anymore. So everybody talks about France. Oh, they did it, and look, it didn't work. And one of the arguments that people are making about the U.S. case that's very different is that um, it, unlike in Europe, there's, uh, there, there's fewer, it's not like, you know, I guess people could, they could leave and go to Canada, but they would have to uh, uh, give up their American citizenship in order to get out of this wealth tax because of the way that we already, um, our tax system already works. Um, and all of the proposals um, have these very big exit taxes. So there it does feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, uh, places that we could go in thinking about a wealth tax, whether or not that substitutes for a big tax, I'm not sure, but I do think we need to be thinking about both of these internationally. Um, and then on this question about market structure, I mean, I think it's important to think about all of the different tools we have at our disposal. So it's really important to be thinking about the tax system and redistribution. It's also important to think about the pre-distribution side and how the markets are working. And I think what is actually imperative is that we don't get stuck thinking that either of those is the answer. It isn't an either or. Um, I mean, I think we're, we're at this moment where we can take the best of what a competitive market economy can give us and try to figure out how we can structure institutions to make sure that that benefits the most people. Um, but that, But we don't need to, uh, I think, accept this this debate that it, it's either redistribution or pre-distribution. Thank you. So for the next round of questions, the, uh, the person with the black top in the front. Thank you. Um, I'm Donna Carmichael. I'm at the LSA PhD student. Uh, I have two questions, but they're both related to your chart about business investment. 
And when I looked at that chart, which is a very scary chart, the precipitous drop in the investments made by businesses over the last 50 years, the first thing that struck me was um, financialization Mm -hmm. and the fact that firms can make more money off of financial transactions than they can off of production. So I want to get your perspectives on that and where that's taking that statistic to a very scary place, I think. The second question uh, related to business investment is the fact that there are a reduction in the number of publicly listed companies in major stock exchanges around the world. And the reason for that, as hypothesized, is that there's more capital going into private markets, private equity, private debt, even private capital. And I'd like your comments on what that trend means for inequality, the increasing inflows of capital into private markets and what it means for inequality. Let me see, the person in the back with the black top who just put her hand back down. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much for your talk. Um, As someone watching American politics from the UK, it doesn't really feel as though income inequality is a central theme of Donald Trump's presidency. Um, As obviously you are working in Washington, uh, kind of what gives you hope on a daily basis that like there is an appetite in the US for conversations about reducing income inequality. Yeah, there is one more hand. Yes, two seats next to there. Yeah, thanks. Um, Former um, academic at LSE, how would you um, prevent the elite um, from capturing the policy (laughs) agenda that you talked about? seems to have a great deal of influence. How would you spread that? Or what, what role does media play in that? In the new media, what, what, what could t- technology do? Yeah, that's the $6 million question. I'm going to go in, um, in order this time rather than because that one's, that's the toughest of the three. Um, so um, let me start with the business investment uh, question, although all three of these are tough, so you guys are great. Um, so um, financialization and lower investment. So, yeah. So first off, I think that the lower trend in investment, I mean, this has been a puzzle that um, scholars have been trying to understand, like, why is investment lower than we think it should be, given the level of profits? Why are firms sitting on cash, not investing? Of course, we also know they're taking on a lot of debt. So it seems that the, the, there's something wrong with the incentives. And um, I mean, financialization is, when you say financialization, what I think of are a number of things. And first, I think of the, um, the deregulation of our financial markets that make it easier for um, uh, financial markets to come up with new instruments, to work across different borders. Um, uh, you know, one of the early um, uh, elements of financialization in the United States was allowing banks to do business across state lines, which changed the investment incentives of those banks. So rather than investing in communities, because that's all they could do was invest in their state, now they're national and you don't see that same. So that that's part of the challenge. That's, um, you know, part of financialization, that, that deregulation and all the different pieces of it. But at the same time, all of this has coincided with this rise in wealth. And we know that those who have wealth are more likely to save it, and that this has also led to a demand 
on the you know, this wealth is demanding something to do, and since it's not going into the hands of people who can spend it, there's this imbalance that's also behind the financialization. Like I wonder, and I don't know, and maybe somebody has done research on this. Um, uh, you know, would you see the same level of uh, financialization of the U.S. economy if it wasn't associated with this? rise in economic inequality, if you still saw demand at the bottom, I mean, because the whole point is that firms are doing this because this is where they think they can make the money, because they can't make it any other way, and they certainly can't make money selling things to people unless they give the money to, to borrow. So, um, so this is a very long way of saying that I actually, I, I think that it's actually that inequality is behind financialization. Um, I think that, that then it perpetuates it, but I feel like when you kind of look over the, the history of it, it, so I mean, you can make the argument either way, but so maybe I'm just being provocative, but it just, I feel like there is a case to be made that the increasing financialization of the economy is, is um, an outcome of the rising wealth concentration and perhaps even the rising concentration across firms. Certainly, um, uh, Atif Mian and Amir Sufi with guy named Trebi, whose first name I don't remember, did a paper, I think it's Trebi, I might be getting that wrong, apologies, it's being videotaped if I did, um, did a paper looking at the role of the financial sector, people who worked in that industry, in lobbying for um, financial deregulation, and of course found that places that had higher concentrations of those workers were more likely, um, their, their representatives were more likely to get lobbied and to, to, to do that. So it is sort of like which comes first, um, having the resources or not. So I don't know, I kind of think it goes both ways. And this question about publicly listed, um, the decline in publicly listed firms, I actually thought you were going to start talking about the decline in startups, because we're also seeing that. Um, which you know is such an American thing, right? We're supposed to be entrepreneurs and having startups and small businesses, but when you actually look at the data, we've actually seen um, a lower proportion of smaller firms and startups as we've seen inequality rise and as we've seen market concentration rise. So, which again is is a part of this story. It's not. I don't know that I have a clear sense of um, what the movement to more private um, firms uh, will do in the. Overall, I do know that the, and of course, private equity is a part of the debt problem and the lack of investment problem. And again, that's a lot of money looking for something to do. Um, so I would connect it back to there. But the private equity is certainly not a good thing. A, a very dear friend of mine um, and mentor, Eileen Applebaum, uh, wrote this wonderful book on private equity. So if you, so you're clapping. So yes, so you just read that and then you'll know everything you need to know. Um, so. Um, is income inequality a theme of Trump's presidency? Hope that is such a great question, um, and I kind of rephrased it a little bit because, I, you know, if you listen to Trump's speeches when he was running, um, he talked a lot about jobs and inequality. I mean, that was a huge theme, and it was actually quite amazing, as um, you know, somebody who's worked on economic policy to hear a president. It was his first press conference, or maybe it wasn't the press conference, but in his first weeks in office, days in office. <laughs> He called for this American manufacturer who was going to move to Mexico to not move. And it was like, wait, what? Wait, policymakers can actually do that? They can tell firms to not do things that hurt communities? 
right? You could see why that message was resonating with a large swath of the American public, right? Communities that had been hollowed out by trade. There's a lot of research evidence now that the way that the United States has pursued trade has led to hollowing out of communities and in ways that were unanticipated by economists um, with devastating consequences. And for him to say, we're going to prioritize these, you know, making your communities thrive, it's very powerful. Now, of course, that firm eventually did leave and like there was no there was no meat behind that agenda. So I'm speaking only in the realm of rhetoric. But um, inequality, I think, is everywhere in American politics right now. Um, it's certainly the way that uh, I think Trump talks to when he's talking to his public, what he's talking about. And it's all about pushing back on elites. It's all about pushing back on people that aren't on your side, right? And so there, you know, you see these polls and people do believe that he might be a scumbag or he might be not a nice person or whatever, but he's on our side. Um, and I think that's really important. And that's also what's been resonating in the Democratic primaries is people really trying to, to, you know, see, I mean, I guess I'm making implicitly the argument that inequality plays its, its way through politics in terms of whether or not uh, the majority feels that the policymakers um, are doing things that are in the, uh, uh, to the benefit of all or to the benefit of them, not just to the benefit of elites. Um, but on the hope question, you know, I think that the fact that um, you do see so much discussion about uh, economic inequality, about uh, taxing wealth, about market concentration, bubbling up in ways that it never has before in the political discourse, to me feels very, very powerful. Um, it's also the case that people uh, keep talking about the need for structural changes. And that, I think, is a tough phrase because, like, what does that mean? But behind that is this need I think to, to, to you know, in many ways they're talking about the kinds of ideas that I've been talking about here tonight, that you need to find ways to constrain um, high-end wealth inequality and address the way that um, the concentration of economic resources leads to a concentration of political and social power, and we need to unpack that and do something about it. So that feels hopeful to me. Where it goes, nobody knows. Um, but I think this question about elite capture is 100% there because you uh, – how is it that you ensure that technocrats and policymakers will be doing things that are in the benefit of the whole economy? That is actually uh, why I think that these distributional national accounts are such a powerful tool. Because we've seen decades of policymakers on both sides of the political aisle not focused on what really mattered to the vast majority of Americans, which isn't just growth or just a good stock market, but is growth that was broadly distributed. So when the economy grew, the vast majority grew, like it did in the 60s and 70s. But we haven't had statistics that in real time hold policymakers accountable. We did analysis when we started equitable growth of um, how uh, the media talks about inequality. And they talk about inequality in long feature pieces and every year when we get the inequality data.
But then all the rest of the time, when we're talking about the economy, we're talking about the statistics that we get all the time, GDP, the stock market, you know, trade data, right? As though these are two separate things, as though the effect on people and communities wasn't literally the economy rather than these indicators that, that, that are just a piece of the economy. And so I think that what's so powerful is that this is an indicator where we already have the data. We don't have to do anything new. It's just matching data on tax returns that we have with data on GDP, put it together, and then you can see where it goes, opening up a new conversation that I think could take us a long way towards holding elites and policymakers accountable for the policies that they do. Donald Trump did this tax cut in 2017, only benefiting, primarily benefiting those at the very, very top of the income spectrum, and was really excited when GDP growth was 3% two quarters later. And what I wanted was I wish we had distributional national accounts so we could be like, hey, well, so what did that actually mean for real people? But that's not the conversation we were having because those data come out at different times. It's my impassioned call for us to do national accounts. So, uh, yes, um, I think that gentleman in the back had his hand up quite a while. Thank you. I'm, I'm an engineer, oh, yay. a member of the general public, and the first time I heard, talking about the uh, subversion of institutions, uh, the first time I heard the idea that maybe our parliamentarians should be drafted randomly from the public, it, 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 it was crazy, but what do you think about that? <laughs> okay, so, the gentleman in, in the blue shirt, please. Hello, my name is Lars Bo. Uh, I'm here from Denmark for a week uh, at LSE. And thank you for great uh, lectures. Also this one, I've been here the whole week. Um, one small thing, um, Andrew Yang talks about the freedom dividend, which could be a possibility to increase what you'd call effective demand, which is what Mena Keynes is talking about. I wanted to say a little bit more very briefly, because what you have is you have a skilled bias in the work market, which is to say that, that people who do really well, who have a high education, like engineers or uh, IT developers, they make a lot of money because they're very in high demand. And then you have outsourcing and automation, the fourth industrial revolution, that sort of diminishes the wages at the ones at the low end, which also could Say something. So could the freedom dividend that Yang is talking about change that? Sorry for the long answer. No, it's great. So I see still a lot of hands, and I don't know if we can have time for everybody. Um, so I will, the, um, the lady in the green top. Yeah, there's three here, yeah. Yeah, and there are also three. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. It pays to be visible. Oh, up there. Um, my question is um, around your main indicator, which I really applaud... Um, the element of, uh, of including the distribution of incomes. Um, but to what extent do you think it's sustainable to continuously focus on growth, to frame inequality in terms of what it means for growth, um, and to champion that indicator in terms of um, in you know, the upcoming climate apocalypse, for example? Um, and the need of rethinking societies and economy and economies um, soon um, in that light. Thank you. Should I go for these three? Okay, great. So we'll go for these three. I'm going to try to be quick because there are three other questions I saw, so I'll, hopefully we can get to all of them. Um, 
I'm so glad you asked that question. You, the green person in the green jacket, um, and asked your your sustainable question. It's uh, it's a great one. It's really important one that um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about. I, I would argue that um, yes, we need to we need to we need to have that conversation. We need to do something about the climate apocalypse, and um, nothing could be more important. Um, the question that I am thinking about is how do we get there? And I think that in a country, at least in the United States, in a country as unequal as ours, and where so many Americans feel that they haven't been benefiting from the economy, we need to deal with the um, economic inequality alongside, before, during we deal with the climate issues, because that's, that's going to make the politics even harder if we don't take that into account. And I think that doing the disaggregated national accounts, the um, gives us a new tool to have a different conversation about growth. So, you know, it was, what, almost a decade ago that um, Stiglitz and the Fatuzzi did the commission on how we need to rethink GDP. There have been all of these different efforts. Maybe it wasn't a decade ago. Maybe I'm getting my numbers wrong. But there have been all these different efforts to rethink GDP, to bring in household labor, to bring in climate. Um, and that is all, those are really important efforts. And yet none of them have been able to sort of crack, quickly crack in and become the new standard by which countries are measuring economic success. And what I like about the disaggregated national accounts is that we could literally do that. We could make this happen in a variety of countries within the next 12 months, right? It doesn't require as much new or as much inference about making assumptions um, that we don't have really precise answers on, but it will actually force us to confront a different understanding of the economy, which I think would open up the question that you're asking. Well, yeah, so what does it look like to think about sustainability, but then who is going to get the gains of any economic growth? You can have those conversations simultaneously without having to also then um, have all of the assumptions about uh, the environment where you would have to make a lot of assumptions in the data. But, and again, I think that that would be a great thing to do. I just, the, the, there's an urgency to now. Um, and so how do we make steps? How do we, you know, as a friend of mine said, how do you get points on the board? Just keep moving the ball forward. So that's my only sports metaphor, again, with the jokes. But anyway, um, uh, so um, on the Andrew Yang question, so a really interesting one. Um, I think in the U.S. case, um, there has certainly been a lot of research over the past decade um, in labor economics that pretty, pretty much over pretty much, I would argue, overwhelmingly shows that that narrative about the skill bias technological change doesn't hold up for a variety of reasons. I mean, first of all, we've seen very different trends in the U.S. than our economic competitors. And so if, um, I mean, so if we were seeing the same sort of impact of globalization, we would have seen the same um, labor market trends. But then there is this, um, you know, especially when you look at folks at the very, very top of the income distribution who are reaping these gains, you know, you think about the fact that um, the decline in unions, which has made it almost impossible for those in the middle to actually reap any of the gains of growth and those have gone disproportionately to the top. Is that because of skills or is that because it doesn't seem to be that there's been a de-skilling in the same way um, in jobs that, that could or had formerly been covered by unions? So I think there's some challenges there. The freedom dividend, as I understand it, um, would be um, you know a form of a basic income. So to make that a little bit more general, I think that um, 
I have a lot of questions about that kind of policy on two axes. One is that in the United States, the conversations that I've been in where they talk about um, basic income or the freedom dividend, um, it has been with people who also talk about, oh, that would be really great because then we could make our government services more efficient because we could cut back on all these other things. And that, to me, is a very wrong-headed argument um, because it makes the assumption that everyone needs the same things when, in fact, you have families that might be headed by a single parent or where you've got a child with disabilities or where they have special help or whatever that families need. And so we have all these programs, and we don't have very many, not as many as other countries do. And the thought that we're going to start kind of whittling all that down for the targeted populations because we're now going to have this universal benefit is a little – it um, doesn't seem to be starting in the right place. But then on the other hand, I've been in a lot of conversations where people say, well, this is great. So the robots are going to do all the work, which is awesome. And um, as a result, we're going to see people do less work, but we'll have this new basic income. But I think I have questions about, you know, is that different people? Is it that some people, like are some people relying on this entirely? Is this supposed to, are we all going to get to live in Keynes's um, a brilliant future where, you know, Keynes um, wrote about how um, he was looking forward to his great-grandchildren being able to have 15-hour work weeks. So is it that we'll all have 15-hour work weeks and we will get this dividend? It seemed – so I have a lot of questions about it. You can tell I'm, I'm skeptical because I also think that it's the – I think that we need to focus on who owns the robots and how we're thinking about that dissemination of technology, I think that's the nugget. That's the really important piece of the puzzle. And if we can figure that out, then the rest will follow. If we focus on making a huge political effort for a UBI and we don't deal with this other problem, I think we will have not created something that will solve the problems that we want to solve. Um, and parliamentarians drafted, right? Isn't that what they did in Rome? Didn't they have, like, where they, like, drafted some people? I'm not sure. I'm not, like, I don't have all my, my history of different governments. Um, I, you know, I, I think it's an interesting idea. Uh, uh, you know, some, we talk about uh, term limits and other ways. But then there's, you know, you also want people who know what they're doing, right, who have some expertise. So maybe what we need is just better civic ed education so that more people run for office. Um, uh, in the U.S. now, the um, uh, members of Congress and senators are so disproportionately wealthy. They do not look like America in any way, shape, or form. And that, um, that is a problem. So, but, so maybe what you could do is reserve seats for people based on class background or other kinds of background. That, I think, actually would be very exciting. So you could have the U.S. Senate, which has got its own sort of challenges, but maybe you say we're going to have these new seats that are voted nationwide but that represent people from working class backgrounds so that we actually have people representing us in the Senate. Or maybe we draft those people. I don't know. These are all – but it's not crazy. It's not crazy to talk about it. So. Any more questions? Uh, there's one question here in the front. Given the kind of America you clearly want to see and your concerns about inequality and about elite capture of political processes and therefore the economy, I'm interested in hearing why you worked for Hillary Clinton and not Bernie Sanders. I'm happy to answer that. <laughs> okay, there's one question here at the front. Um, thank you for a very interesting presentation. Um, just two questions very quickly. One is you're asking politicians if this is the where you're taking the distribution national accounts. Uh, you're asking politicians to make their life much more difficult down the line. 
by adopting this methodology because right now it is just very easy. It's GDP, employment, some total economic measures. It's very easy. If it works for us, then high fives. Everyone is happy. Take credit for it. If it doesn't work, we'll blame it on someone else. This is from political viewpoint. Wait, I'm sorry, say that again. I didn't quite understand. You are asking politicians to make their life very difficult yes, by adopting it. this because that will provide clarity to the wider society that doesn't exist today. Don't tell them that. <laughs> so do, do you think this will work? That is number one. Number two, do you see any other institutional or credible way of bringing this to light outside the political arena? In um, uh, a U.S. where alternative facts are uh, living and breathing and all sorts of things, it's an open society. So do you see any other institutional or credible routes to get to the same results? Thank you. Great. So I will take one last question from the person in the black jacket. Yes. Okay. Actually, I got two questions. Uh, first of all, I... Uh, I would like to thank you for the speech. It was really nice. And my first question is a technical question because in the U.S. any wealth tax might be considered as direct tax and then it has to be, you know, relative to the population of the state. Like the tax has to be paid relatively to the population of state. And then, for example, a state like California will, will pay a similar tax as any other state that's of the similar size, even though California is a way uh, welfare state. So how would you address this issue? And the second question that I would like to ask is um, that by introducing wealth tax, you might limit long-term um, investments by, uh, yeah, by simply tax, uh, taxating people from the, uh, from the higher classes. And by that, you may limit long-term, um, by limiting long-term uh, investments you may limit bolstering um, the innovation process, the development of the innovations, and how would you address that as well? Great. Um, well, I'll start here. So, um, I mean, I think on the the. I mean, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting question. If you tax wealth, do you have less um, capital for investment? I mean, certainly at this point in this economy, that's not my concern. Um, because what I see is a lot of wealth out there that isn't being used for investment already. So could we put that to a better use? Um, and then, of course, that should that should bring up the next question, which is, well, what are you going to use that money for, right? And um, there are both, um, it, you know, you could use it, you could say, well, I'm only going to do a wealth tax if I could make investments in um, uh, you know, policies to address climate change, or I'm only going to do a wealth tax um, uh, if I want, uh, if I'm going to um, use it to make investments in early child, in early child care and education, right? So, um, the the question I think you're implicitly the the implicit question you're asking is, is it always better for the private sector to decide what to do with capital than the public sector? And my life experience. And I think my reading, my reading of the research evidence is that it is not always better for one of those entities to make the decision. And we have been starving the ability of us collectively as citizens of my country, and I think yours as well, or this, actually I don't know where you're from, but this country that we're in today, um, to make those investments that are in the public interest. And so I think that, that it 
if we're going to do that, we need to take very seriously how we're going to hold policymakers accountable. Um, what are the institutions and mechanisms to make sure that those tax dollars are spent on the investments that we want? Um, but I don't think that uh, I don't think that pre I don't think that that necessarily means you're going to see a decline in long-term investment because because the money would should be invested either way. It's just public or private. Um, and I didn't quite understand your question about the states. So I'm going to pass on that one, and we can talk about it over drinks. Is that okay? Great. Um, uh, so on the GDP, that's such a great – so it's funny that you would say that because I have not gotten that reaction um, when I've gone up to the Hill to talk about it. So I was just last week sitting um, in a – a morning meeting with um, a number of senators, and they're excited about it. I mean, then the ones the ones who have introduced the legislation. So I don't think so. You know, all indicators have pros and cons, but I think that there is certainly an appetite to get this data because there are certainly enough members that realize that this is a really important thing that matters to their constituents, and they don't have the tools to hold their colleagues accountable. So. I mean, so yes, it might be um, challenging, but you know, it's funny. Um, we've had a long conversation in the United States about revamping the poverty line, and that hasn't happened. Like, we haven't changed the official poverty threshold. There's some alternatives that are released on Poverty Day, but they're not like the official ones because that actually has money associated with it. But this is different because this actually wouldn't um, have money as money associated, meaning that when the poverty threshold changes, the amount of money that goes to, to various government programs changes. This wouldn't have that. So it really is, in some sense, no different than any other statistic. So I don't know that it's it does, it's not subject to the same concerns that the poverty threshold was. So I haven't thought about your question, and I, I'm I'm I've decided on up here that I'm not going to worry about it. But maybe tomorrow I'll wake up and think that that's that there's more to it than that. But that's great. And we've been doing a lot of work to elevate what um, the scholars have been doing. But the data I showed you is last update. I mean, it only goes to 2016. That's not good enough. So we can do a lot, and academics can do a lot. But in order to really have the data up to date, the Fed data I showed you was up to the last quarter. So the Fed's doing its distributional accounts. It's like most recent academics, it's years. I mean, love academics, but you know, it's a little slow, slow. Um, and then, um, you know, uh, I'm glad that you asked about values. I, I think, you know, I, often when I give book talks, I do at some point admit that I actually do have a set of values about what I think the economy um, should deliver, and that that is it should deliver growth that is not just strong and stable, but that it be broadly shared, and that we're trying to work for a country where. Um, uh, that's happening. And, um, you know, I'm happy to talk more about politics with you um, over drinks. Uh, but I, I think that um, uh, that's certainly what uh, the folks that I have been associated with have been working for as well. So I will, I will close the session here. I would like to ask for a big round of applause for Heather. Thank you.